Isn't Jesus good? Aren't you thankful that you know him? Amen. Aren't you thankful that you know him? And thank you to our praise team and musicians. We appreciate uh, the beautiful music today. They Every week they provide us beautiful music, don't they? And we're so grateful for them and all that they do, all the hours they put in. Uh, let me tell you that tonight <clears throat> at uh, 6 o'clock, we start back a Sunday evening Bible study. It's been 15 months since we've had a Sunday evening Bible study. And I invite you to come back and to join me this evening. But we're going to begin this evening a study through Revelation. And it'll take us a lot of weeks to do that. But we're going to begin a study that'll take us through the Revelation. And tonight, I'm going to give you some of the introduction to that study. And it's at 6 o'clock tonight. Now, I know you saw the starting point slide. And the starting point slide said 5 o'clock. And Nathan, or excuse me, Matt said 4.30. It, it's 4.30. That's the right time. 4.30. That was just a mistake there. 4.30. And then at 6 o'clock, you come back and you join me over here in the auditorium. And we're going to study the Revelation. How many of you would like to know how it all comes to an end? Wouldn't you like for it to be soon? <laughs> uh, I'd love to see the Lord. And love to be in his presence. But till then, we've got to be faithful, don't we? We've got to obey the Lord. Find your place in your Bible with me today, if you will, at the book of Ecclesiastes. And welcome to everyone. Welcome to our guests that are online. We are so thankful to have you. Please make sure to share that link and invite others to join you for the message today. <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, we began last week a new series of messages, and I hope that you heard last week's message. If you didn't, you can go online. You can listen to it. No cost, no charge. You can uh, take it with you free of charge, and it'll be something that uh, will give you the background to where we're going in this study on Sunday mornings through these next several weeks, talking from the book of, of Ecclesiastes. I told you that Ecclesiastes was written by Solomon. And I went through the text and I showed you why we believe it is Solomon that wrote this particular, uh, this particular book of the Bible. It was written at the end of his life, towards the end of his life. And he's looking back on a period of his life when he had turned his heart away from God. When God was not in focus, when he was not seeing life from God's point of view, when he did not have, if you will, a biblical worldview. He had a humanistic worldview. He was only seeing what he could see under the sun. He was looking horizontally in life. Rather than vertically, he was looking horizontally at life. And as he looks back at that period of his life, he journals what his experience was like. And Ecclesiastes is his journal. He writes down what it was like living without God what it was like living without the recognition of God in my life, that there is something greater than me. And the result is that it seems like a book that's pretty negative and pretty pessimistic. But actually, this book wasn't written for those who were followers of God. This book was written for those who are not followers of God. And Solomon looks back and he journals about his experience and he says, look, you think you can live this life without God? You're mistaken. You try to live this life without God? Let me show you the emptiness of a life lived that way. And when you read through those chapters, it's, it's, very, it's very realistic that 
You know, this is a man who lacks an eternal perspective. This is a man who lacks a biblical point of view. This is a man who can't see life like God wants us to see life. He lacks the wisdom of God. He may have the wisdom of man, but he lacks the wisdom of God to be able to see life from God's point of view. And he's very discouraged as he puts the words of this journal down. And he's trying to make sure that those who come behind him, who think they can find life somewhere other than in God, he's hoping to say to them, look, come sit at my feet. Let me tell you, I've been there. I've done that. I've got the T-shirt to prove it. And I want you to know that the path you think you're on that's going to bring you happiness isn't going to bring you happiness at all. And then he comes to the conclusion of the book at the very end of the book. And he says, let me tell you what the conclusion is. And I hope you'll read that at some point. We're going to read that at some point. We're going to study that at some point. What the conclusion is, if you leave God out of the equation, you will always end up feeling like Solomon felt when he wrote these words. Now, today we're going to look at the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1. It's going to get a little bit discouraging in here for a few minutes. But these are the words of a man who's living his life under the sun, apart from a God perspective, apart from a spiritual point of view, apart from the eternal perspective that God would have us to have, God would have us to experience. Notice verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Oh, man, do we have to go any further? I want you to look back to chapter 12 just for a moment real quickly. Back to chapter 12. I want you to see the bookend. In chapter 12, verse 8, he says exactly the same thing and everything between it. These these are the bookends to everything in his journal between these two thoughts. Verse 8, vanity of vanity says The preacher, all is vanity. Oh, man. Can't we focus on something else, Pastor? Can't we think about something else? Five times in one verse, he uses the same Hebrew word, hebel. Hebel. Uh, In your translation, you might find it translated as the word futile or meaningless. Some translations use the word useless or pointless or I like the word empty. He says empty of all empties. I mean, everything in life is empty. It's a superlative. He's saying everything in life is empty, vain. It's empty. Actually, the word refers to your breath. It's like a vapor that's here for a moment and then it's gone. It's like smoke. And you try to reach out and you try to grab hold of it and there is no substance to it. There's nothing to hold on to. You squeeze your fingers closed and everything is gone from your hand. Take a moment, will you? Take your hand and just hold it out like this, one of your hands, and just try to catch the air in front of you. Just just try to catch the air in front of you. you. You can't do it. I mean, the harder you try, the more you try, you realize it's impossible, it's vain, it's empty, it's pointless, it's meaningless, it's futile. That's what he thinks about life. That's what a lot of people think about life who are living without God or who are living without a God perspective on life. 
I just can't quite get a handle on it. It just never fully satisfies. It, it never really fulfills my life. I'm, I'm always reaching for something more. There's got to be something else. And Solomon, this man who at the end of his life realizes this period when he was not living for God, and his heart was turned away from the Lord, and he wasn't thinking from a God point of view. He journals about how miserable his life was. It was like trying to reach for something, and I just can't get a hold of it. It's always just out of my grasp. One of the phrases we'll see a little later on in our study, it's like grasping for the wind. It's like grasping for the wind. And that's how Solomon saw life as he journals how he saw life when he was living. His heart was turned away from God, and he was living without a God point of view. He was living as if, he was a pure, if life was purely humanistic, as if he was the center of the world and everything else was under his control, and yet he could never quite get a grasp on it. In Hebrew poetry, Hebrew wisdom literature, they would often put the thesis at the very beginning, so that you would know what the conclusion was, what he understood, what, what was the experience of his life. And he's telling you right up front, before he even begins anything else, this is who I am. I am Solomon, the author of this book. But I want you to know, life without God is a vain existence. It's empty. Now, from that point forward, he goes on to show that life is one monotonous cycle after another. That no matter how hard you try, without God, there just is no meaning in your life. He says in verse 3, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils? And here's the phrase we talked about last message, under the sun. What profit? That's a commercial expression. It refers to the net earnings after the expenses are all paid. Profit is something that's objectifiable. It's something that can be accumulated. And he says, what can be accumulated? What is objectifiable in my life? I mean, what is the net earnings of my life? I mean, I'm laboring. The word means I'm working hard at. I'm giving everything I've got. I'm giving the best that I have. I'm struggling all through life, trying to work as hard as I possibly can by the sweat of my brow. I'm working as hard as I can. What profit? What's the net gain? And the answer is nothing. It's vain. It's empty. It's vanity of vanities. Hey, look, without God, you could amass great sums of wealth. You can be a Jeff Bezos. You can be a Bill Gates. Without God, you can amass properties and possessions. You can have things galore. Without God, you can achieve things in this life. But the reality is, in the long range, it really doesn't mean anything. You labor for it all, but you can never quite get your hand on it and grasp it and hold it. It'll never fulfill you. It'll never satisfy you. That's what he's saying. What profit is there in all of my labors in which I'm toiling? I'm working hard. I'm building. Solomon was building. He was a master builder. Talk about an architect. He was building the temple. He was building the palace. He was building the kingdom of Israel. And all of this that's going on all around him says, it doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't fulfill me. 
I'm living my life without God, and there is no real joy in any of it. He continues in his journal. He's going to show you the cyclical nature of life. Verse 4, one generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. You know, we like to think of life in the linear. We like to think that life is a linear experience. You know, you have a dream of something you want to do. You go prepare to achieve that dream in life. You start reaching for that dream, moving toward that dream. You get involved in something that moves you in that direction. You finally reach your dream, and you get to the place where you thought you always wanted to be, and you got to your dream, and guess what? It didn't satisfy you either. Because life really, for the most part, isn't something that's linear. Life, for the most part, is something that's cyclical. You start with a dream. You go prepare to, to, to find that dream and live that dream. You go to work and get busy. You give yourself to that dream, trying to achieve it. You achieve the dream, and you're right back where you started from. Now what am I going to do? I've achieved my dream. There's got to be something more than this. I can't, this can't be the end of my life. There's got to be something else in life. I mean, I mean, I've done all of this grasping, and I can't find the fulfillment and the satisfaction. Think about it. Uh, You wear your clothes, you put them in the dirty clothes, you wash your clothes, and you wear your clothes. Right? Then you wear your clothes, you put them in the dirty clothes, and you wash the clothes. Or or, uh, just, just think about other aspects of your life. You know, since Mary had her surgery, I've been picking up some of the household duties. Should have been doing that probably all along. But I was picking up some of the household duties, and I've been watching the cycle. You use a dish, you eat off of a dish, you put a dish in a dishwasher, you put a dish up, you eat off a dish. You put a dish in the dishwasher, you wash the dish, you put a dish up. And it's one endless cycle until finally I said, why don't we stop using dishes and just use paper plates? <laughs> I mean, this is so meaningless. This is so, this is so purposeless. Just so that we can say that we ate off of real china, off of real plates with real forks. I mean, is it really that necessary? <laughs> Cyclical. Life, instead of being linear for the most part, where we're ever moving upward, finally we get to our dream and everything comes to us and all of life is happy. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. You remember when your car got old and you thought, I'm going to get a new car and you started studying out cars. And you started looking at all the benefits of the different cars and what the various things you wanted inside the car and how you wanted the car to look. And, you know, it might have been an SUV. It might have been a truck for you. But you were looking at a car. And, man, you you were so excited. You went you could smell the newness of the cars. Didn't you love that? Don't, Don't you love that? 
And you look at the stickers on the cars. Now you do most of that online. But you look at the stickers on the car and, and you, you do all of that excitement. And finally, finally, you choose the car you think is going to be the ultimate car. This is the car I've got to have. And you buy the car. And about a week later, you have what? Buyer's remorse. Why didn't I see that when I was looking for the car? Why didn't I know that? When I was looking for the car and about a year or two down the road, where did that good new car smell really go? Why isn't it there any longer? And why am I having to go through this cycle that just goes over and over because we think that things can satisfy and things will never fully satisfy us. It's just like one big cycle. He says, one generation comes and another generation goes. But the earth goes on. And he uses this as a contrast. You know, I used to pick up the paper. I don't even know if they do all these things anymore. But I used to pick up the paper and you'd read the birth announcements and you'd read the death announcements. Have you ever noticed how everybody dies in alphabetical order? That's an old Corky Thompson joke. Everybody dies in alphabetical order. There's births and there's deaths. There's births and there's deaths. There's births and there's death. But you know, they all end up in the earth. If you're born, you're ultimately going to die. If you die, you're going to the earth, and the earth's going to keep on going, but somebody else will be born to take your place. And it's just one monotonous cycle that just gets so boring. You know, the greatest sin today is the sin of being boring. Life just can't be boring. While we're chasing all the things that we're chasing, trying to find some kind of fulfillment and excitement that can't be found apart from God. He goes on. He moves from what I'll call philosophy. One generation comes, another goes, to what we'll, we'll call astronomy. Verse 5, he says, the sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. <clears throat> Have you noticed that? Every morning the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west. He said, oh, pastor, you're not very scientific. You don't, sun doesn't ever move. The sun doesn't move. It's, it's us that are moving. It's the earth that's moving. Yeah, but from our perspective and our point of view, what do you say? You say the sun rises too, don't you? Some of you are crazy enough that when you go to the beach, you get up at like 5.30 or 6 in the morning and go out and sit on the sand to watch the sun come up over the ocean, Right? And others of you go to the mountains and you get on the highest peak you can possibly get on and you wait till the sun sets in the west and you watch it till it goes down beyond the horizon. And guess what? It's going to do the same thing tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and the next Sunday and the following Monday. It's just one monotonous cycle that just goes on and on. There doesn't seem to be any meaning to it. There's no fulfillment in it. That's why you have to keep going back for it. He continues this under the sun, this humanistic perspective. He moves to meteorology. He says the wind, verse 6, <clears throat> goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind whirls about continually and comes again on its circuit. I mean... The meteorologist can tell you a little bit about where the wind's going to come from and how hard it's going to blow, the cold fronts and the warm fronts that are coming in and going out. 
can tell you something about the wind. How many of you remember the derecho? May not have said that right. Or you know about tornadoes or you know about hurricanes or hurricanes and you know you can read the maps and you can understand something about how they come. And guess what? There's going to be wind tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. There's going to be more tornadoes. There's going to be more hurricanes. It's just one monotonous, boring cycle. This is how he feels about life. He's gotten to the end of his life where he's looking back now. He's journaling about what life was like lived without God, without a heart for God, without a God perspective. And he said life was just you know, birth and death, birth and death, birth and death. Life is the wind coming and the wind going, the wind coming and the wind going. The sun gets up and the sun goes down. Have you noticed the older you get, how much quicker the sun comes up and goes down? And how much shorter the night is? You're young, you wait. Then he moves to hydrology. Verse 7, he says, all the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Now, the key here, a little bit different than verses 4, 5, and 6, where he's talking about philosophy and astronomy and meteorology and how it's just one monotonous cycle. We, we all understand how this works, don't we? The sun evaporates water out of the ocean. The winds blow that vapor, those clouds over the earth. They drop the water on the earth. It rains like it has been raining around here with you know, flooding, flash flooding. And it runs into the streams, overruns the banks of the streams, the underground streams, and it all ends up ultimately back where? In the ocean. It's one cycle after another. It just keeps happening one day after another. It keeps going on one year after another. But the emphasis that he's making here is that no matter how much water is dropped on the earth and finds its way to the rivers and back to the seas, the seas are never full. They're never satisfied. That's what he says. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. But it's not full. It never gets over full. He goes on. Not only is that true of nature, he says in verse 8, all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Like the sea is never full, what you see never satisfies, what you hear never fully fulfills. I mean, I can remember a day when it cost... A significant amount of money to be able to take pictures. You had to buy the camera. You had to buy the film. Once you took the pictures, then you had to take the film to be developed. And then you had to have pictures made from the negatives. And depending on how many of each one you wanted, you, you know, that's how much it cost you. And it was a pretty involved process. And yet we still have, what, boxes of pictures that we never look at. And now, we don't have hundreds or maybe thousands of pictures. We have 10,000s of pictures that we never look at. I mean, every once in a while, we'll bring them up on the television, and we might watch them, you know, through iCloud, through, the, through, through uh, you know, casting it to the TV. And you look at them, and you go, oh, man, aren't those pictures great? 
But I mean, most, for the most part, we don't even look at them. We don't even categorize them. You know, this was vacation. Let's put them all in the vacation file. They're just out there somewhere. If you ever tried to go back and find that one picture that you remember, you know you took that picture, you remember seeing that picture, it's in your picture file, but now it's not in a box with a few hundred others. Now it's on a phone or on a hard drive somewhere with thousands of other pictures. No matter what we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how many songs we, we, we have with Apple Music or Amazon Music or some of the other music services, we're never fulfilled by that. Life is one monotonous cycle. Can you see him writing this in his journal? This is a man who's reviewing his life without God. This is what life was like without God. It's vain. It's vanity of vanities. It's vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. It's empty. It's like trying to hold on to something that's out there that has no substance to it. And you, you grasp for it. And you can never quite get your hand on it. It's just one humanistic perspective after another. People come and people go. Days come and days go. The rain comes and the rain goes, but the ocean never fills up. The eye is never satisfied. The hearing is never fulfilled because the things of this earth can never satisfy the human heart. He says at the end of verse 9, that which has been, or he says in verse 9, that which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. You ever feel like that? There's nothing really new. That which has been, those are circumstances from the past. That which is done are human endeavors that are happening right now. Whether it's your circumstances or it's the endeavors of your life, I mean, there's really nothing new in life. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed the cycles of fashion? I've seen some of the younger people wearing the, the tie-dye shirts, all those multicolored, uh, rainbow-colored shirts. And I, mean, I love them. They're, they're great. I, I think they're fantastic. And, and they all think they're wearing something new. <laughs> and... Uh, I want to stop them somewhere along the way and say, we wore those in the 60s. <laughs> we wore those. We had the mullets. We had the long hair. We wore the tie-dye. We had all that stuff in the 60s. If something out of the 60s and 70s, I'm praying, doesn't cycle back around, and that's the leisure suit. <laughs> the men's leisure suits. I'm just, I'm just praying, Lord, please, please don't let that cycle around. Please, I, I per, per, appreciate it. If that didn't have to come back, you know? You know, the dresses get shorter, the dresses get longer, the dresses get wider, they get more narrow. You get bell bottoms, you get, you know, where you can't, you have to pull yourself into them. <laughs> hey, there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff. It's just the cycle of life, but there's nothing new. It's just a matter of a little different variation on what has already been true. Right? He goes on in verse 10. Is there anything of which it may be said, see, this is new? It has already been in ancient times before us. You say, oh, but pastor, 
There are new inventions and there are new creations. Yeah, he's not really talking about that. He's talking about the fact that everything that may seem to us to be new has existed in some form previously. And we have just discovered how to use it in a different way or how to bring it together in a little bit of a different way. I'm reminded of a group of scientists that got together and they decided that man had come so far that they no longer needed God. So the scientists decided to send one of those scientists to talk to God about it. So he goes to God and he says, God, we've decided we no longer need you. We're at the point we can clone people and we can do miraculous things with medicine and all the other things that you can do in science. And we don't need you anymore. You can just go your own way. And God listened patiently and God listened quietly. And he was very kind. And he said, okay, all right, how about this? Let's say we have a man-making contest. A man-making contest. Well, the scientist says, okay, that's great. Yeah, we can do that. And God said, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to make man just like I did in the beginning. Scientist said, sure, no problem. He bends down to grab a handful of dirt, and God says, no, 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 no. Get your own dirt. Get your own dirt. Hey, there's really nothing new. You may find a different way to use it. We may find a way that we we can bring it together in in a fashion that has never been brought together before, but it's really just using something that's already existed And the truth of the matter is he's not talking about creations and inventions. He's talking about the cycle of life. The reality is there isn't anything new. The fact of the matter is what I experience in life, you experience in life, and what you experience in life, I experience in life. And we think, man, we're going to have a different experience from anybody else. But the reality is it's just one big monotonous, boring cycle. So I think at this point we'll just quit the message and we'll end here, right? That'd be, that'd be terrible, wouldn't it? D- do you see when you don't have a God perspective and you don't have a God point of view and you're living only for what's under the sun and you're not living for the one who is above the sun and you don't have a biblical worldview, you only have a humanistic, secular worldview that life turns in not to a linear effect of moving upward till you find that total fulfillment and joy. Instead, it becomes one monotonous boring cycle that just goes around and around and around and people come and say, let me out of this world. One psychologist by the name of William Moulton Marston asked 3,000 individuals, what do you have to live for? He said the answer shocked him. He found that 94% were not living at all. They were simply enduring the present while waiting for something in the future. He said they were waiting for something to happen, waiting for children to grow up and leave home, waiting for next year when things would be better or at least different, waiting for the chance to take a trip, waiting for tomorrow, waiting, waiting, he says. For them, life had deteriorated to a cycle with little meaning in and of itself, a cycle with little meaning in and of itself. That's Solomon. Because God is no longer in view. God is no longer in the picture. God has been shoved out of his life, if you will. 
His heart's been turned away from the Lord, and now he's living only by what he can understand and what he can see before him. He has a horizontal point of view. He does not have a vertical point of view. He may have the wisdom of men, but he lacks the wisdom of God. And the result is he has found life one boring, monotonous cycle from which he wants to escape. Dr. James Dobson is a name that many of you recognize. Focus on the family. Many books about marriage and children that he's written. Clinical psychologist. He tells about one of his USC School of Medicine colleagues that died unexpectedly. He said that about 200 of his peers gathered for a five-minute eulogy and a one-minute moment of silence. Dr. Dr. Dobson writes, I was thinking... Lord, is this what it's all come to? We sweat and worry and labor to achieve a place in life to impress our fellow men with our competence. We take ourselves so seriously, overreacting, he says, to the insignificant events of each passing day. Then finally, even for the brightest among us, all these experiences fade into history and our lives are summarized with a five-minute eulogy And 60 seconds of silence, he said, it hardly seems worth the effort, Lord. And that's where a lot of people are today. Some of you are that way. You're living your life without God in view. And the result is you find yourself locked into a cycle of monotony and boredom. You keep trying to find something to make your life meaningful and fulfilling and satisfying. And you're looking in all the wrong places. Only when you keep your focus on God. Do you find the real meaning of life? He finishes in verse 11. He says, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are to come by those who will come after. Life just comes to a five-minute eulogy and a one-minute silence, and everybody just goes on. You become little more than an asterisk. If you're famous... You become little more than an asterisk in history. As a matter of fact, history is getting rewritten every day you live. You don't even control how the history of your famous life is being told. You have some who tell the history of your life if you're famous, and they tell it from negative point of view, and you have some who tell it from a positive point of view, and you can't do anything about it. You can't defend yourself. Solomon is locked into this monotonous cycle. I want you to go back with me, and we'll finish here. Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. We all know the name Joseph. I want, to give you a, I want to give you a living example of somebody who had a different point of view than Solomon. He's a case study in a different point of view than Solomon. 
Joseph was the son of Jacob, one of 12 boys. He was beloved by his father. He'd been given a special coat by his father. His brothers hated him. They were looking for a way to to silence him. They didn't want him in the family. They ended up selling him into slavery. He's taken down into Egypt and he's sold as a slave. He's lied about by Potiphar's wife. Can life get worse? He's lied about by Potiphar's wife. He ends up no longer the steward over Potiphar's household. He ends up in the jail. He lives there in that jail. Yes, he's trustworthy while he's there. Yes, he recognizes the blessings of God on his life. Yes, all of those things are true. But he's forgotten while he's in jail. Do you know how long it'll be from the time he's sold into, into slavery till he arises out of, out of that position in jail? It's about 14 years of time. My brothers have betrayed me. My own family betrayed me. I was lied about by Potiphar's wife. I was forgotten by the very people that I helped. The very people I helped forgot me. And he comes to power, second in command in Egypt. And one day there's a famine. God tells Joseph, there's going to be a famine. You need to save the the grains so that there'll be food during the, time of the, during the time of the famine. And he does exactly that. And there's a famine and his family is hungry. So they come to Egypt to get food. And Joseph recognizes these are some of my brothers. He, he puts them through that test. Do you remember the test? You know, there's, there's the test that's going on about his brothers to see where his brothers are, to see who's living and not living in his family. He goes through these tests. And at the very end of the story, I can't tell you the whole story, at the very end of the story, he finally reveals to his brothers that he is Joseph, the one that they thought was probably dead, at least they'd never see again. He is that Joseph, and he's second in command, and his brothers are bowed out here before him asking for food. Please feed us. We've got to take care of our families. We've got to take care of our elderly dad. Please feed us. And Joseph looks at his brothers, and Joseph says from an under-the-sun perspective, I'm going to get you. I'm going to make your life a living hell. You're going to feel what I felt for 14 years. I'm going to give you back what you gave me. Is that what he said? Because Joseph wasn't living with an under the sun point of view. He had an eternal point of view. He had a divine point of view. He had a God view, a perspective from the perspective of the almighty God that even in the cycle of life that was sometimes miserable for him, that there was a purpose and a plan that was bigger than himself. And he comes in verse 20 of chapter 50. And he says to his brothers who are now bowed before him, he says, but as for you, 
You meant me evil. You meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save my people alive. Do you see the difference in the perspectives? You got Solomon over here writing his journal about what life was like when he was living without a God view, a an eternal view of life, a biblical worldview. And life is one misery after another. It's vanity of vanities. All is vain. It's, It's like trying to grasp smoke in your hand. It never fulfills. Your eyes are never satisfied. Your ears are never fulfilled. The water runs back into the ocean and it never fills up. There's always an emptiness in your life because you're living only for you with one point of view in mind. But not so with Joseph. Joseph lived knowing that there was a greater purpose and a greater plan, even if there was a monotony and a boredom in the cycle of life, that God had a purpose in it all. So that he could say to his brothers, by the way, that's where revenge comes from. Revenge comes from, I can only see what I can see, my humanistic perspective under the sun, so I'm going to take care of this myself. Forgiveness comes when you recognize that there's another point of view. There's a God point of view. There's a biblical, eternal point of view, and you start looking at those circumstances, and you start saying with Joseph, you meant it to me for evil? But God meant it to me and to all of us for good. Can I just tell you something about Jesus? Jesus came in Bethlehem, died on the cross of Calvary for the penalty of our sins, was buried and rose again to save us from our sins so that we could have a different perspective on life. I'm not living just for what this world has to offer. That's one monotonous cycle after another. I'm living for what comes beyond this life. Matter of fact, if if you're an atheist today, you're watching, you're in the room, you're an atheist today, I want you to know you're my friend. We don't hate you. We're not mad at you. We're not angry with you. We love you. We want you to have a different perspective on life. But you got to admit that if your birth is pretty inconsequential, if the beginning of life is inconsequential and the end of life, the destiny, your destiny is inconsequential, it really means that life itself is just inconsequential. But if your birth has a purpose and your death has a purpose and everything that you're experiencing through the course of your life has a purpose to it, then you're beginning to see that there's a reason for me to live and a purpose in my living. And that comes through a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ.